Well, good morning. I hope you guys are enjoying uh, the series we're in and the book. I hope you're reading through it. Fan, uh, not a fan. And Kyle, that's Kyle Edelman there, who's pastor of uh, Southeast Christian in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the largest churches, I think the fifth largest churches in the United States. And I hope you're reading through it, enjoying the series. And I certainly am, and I, I think I'm, this is my fourth time through as, I, as we're preparing each week that I've went through the book, and, and I just think it's powerful stuff. And we're talking about the difference between being a fan or a follower of Jesus. And uh, Jesus doesn't want fans, he wants followers. And I'm just curious, anybody ever have a friend that would uh, lead you astray? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, some, of those, some of those friends are the most friend, best friends we've ever had and the funnest friends we've ever had. But all of us have had those experiences where we had friends that, that led us in the right direction and friends that led us in the wrong direction. And even as I'm, even if I'm, I'm talking about that, I, I can put a face <laughs> on, on somebody that got me in more trouble than anybody should have got me in trouble as a, as a teenager and a, a college student. And uh, we have friends like that. These people that, you know, people who are close to us have the possibility of drawing us into good things or bad things. And all of us have had friends, uh, people that have been intimate in an intimate relationship, an intimate friendship with us that have done both, that they've, they've led us down the right path and led us down the wrong path. And even in a church, uh, even, even around people that, that should be Christian and mature, it's possible in a church to have people that you are in intimate relationship with that lead you down the wrong path. Now, now, typically, it's, it's with attitude, it's with gossip in, in a church of, of this size and this maturity. And, and so that sometimes happens, right? Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> you know, the people that we are closest to have the possibility of influencing us for good or for bad. And, and, and the truth of today that, that we, we need to hear is Jesus wants to be your closest friend. And you're not going to go wrong when Jesus is your closest friend. When you are in an intimate relationship with Jesus, when Jesus is truly a friend, as, as the scripture says, closer than a brother, then Jesus can lead us down right paths and not over cliffs like Kyle talked about in, in his little story. And we're going to begin today with a story. It's in Luke 7, and, and we're not going to read the story. Luke 7, it's a familiar story. It's, it, it, there, there's a lot we could talk about in Luke 7. It's the story, Jesus goes to the home of Simon the Pharisee. And uh, it's really a contrast between two different individuals. In, in this story, um, and, and go ahead and show the picture. You can, we have an image of it. That's an old painting of it. In the, in, in the story, you have Simon the Pharisee. And a Pharisee would be a religious person, would be somebody that knew all the rules, knew all the you know, scripture, knew all the things to do and all the things not to do. Yet Simon the Pharisee, he would have been highly esteemed. People would have thought he had his act all together. His finances were probably all together. Everything was in the house was clean and right and good. Simon the Pharisee would have been a good neighbor. <laughs> Who likes good neighbors? Say amen. <laughs> you know, Simon would have been a good neighbor, a good man, highly esteemed in the community. When people thought about Simon the Pharisee, they would have said, that is one righteous dude, right? 
He was spiritual. He was good. He, you know, he kept all, all the Sabbath laws. He did all the things that a spiritual person was expected to do. Simon the Pharisee would fit in to any church in North America. He would. He would come in here and he would be dressed right and he would look right and he would know the right things to say and he would wear the right clothes and he would know all the lingo and he would know all the cultural do's and don'ts. And we would see him as somebody that had their act together. That's one person in this story. The other person is a woman, an unnamed woman, a sinner woman. She was the kind of person that when she came in the room, you know, you'd move away a little bit. You know, you wouldn't want to be too closely associated with her because she had a reputation. She, she was a, a sinner. You know, not, not, not that her being a sinner was a secret to her or anybody else. But, but she was someone you would not associate with. Most likely, she wasn't in the most stylish clothes. Most likely, she didn't live in the nicest house. But most likely, if she had children, they weren't the, most, the best behaved kids. But most likely, she wasn't being invited to all the right places. Most likely, if she walked into this room today, she'd stand out. She'd look different. Simon would blend in because, see, he understood the culture. She wouldn't. She was nothing more than a sinner. In the eyes of the people, Simon was elite and a winner. In the eyes of the people, this woman was a loser and someone you avoided. And yet there's two responses to Jesus in the story. So Simon has invited Jesus into his home. You think, well, well he, he's being a good host, but no, he's not. So Simon invites Jesus into his home, but he doesn't wash his feet. He doesn't have a slave wash his feet. He, he doesn't even give Jesus water to wash his feet. See, in this culture, this is a big taboo. This is something you wouldn't do. This is a slap in the face. See, if Jesus was really a valued visitor, if Simon really valued Jesus, he would wash Jesus' feet himself. He would. At the very least... If he thought of him as kind of like a colleague or, or somebody that was valued, he'd get his servant to wash his feet. Or, or at the very least, if he even thought of him as somebody worthy of his attention, he'd give him water. And Simon does none of this. So Simon, if he had valued Jesus, he would have anointed his head with oil because that was the custom. That that would have said to Jesus, I am so glad you're in my home. But Simon doesn't even do that. If Simon valued Jesus, if he really was, was glad that he was in his home, he would have given him a, a kiss. And he doesn't even do that. Simon, in essence, invites Jesus into his home, 
and he ignores him. You know, he doesn't give him a high five or anything. Just, you know, you're out there, you're on your own. I've invited you to my home. And, and it's as if he's holding Jesus. Even though he's invited in his home and he may be interested in him, it's like he's holding him in this low self, this low esteem. Now the woman, she's different. And you guys have heard this story. That the woman comes in and, and you have to wonder what the crowds thought. Maybe they're in a courtyard, but you know, in, in, in this setting, if you have a visitor such as Jesus, you couldn't tell someone they couldn't be around, so they couldn't bar her at the door, but it sure wasn't a social thing to do, to just show up. Who likes people just showing up at their house when you're eating, right? This lady just shows up. She wasn't on the guest list. She wasn't invited. They didn't even probably think, why, how would she have the guts to show up at Simon the Pharisee's house? This was the right side of the tracks, and she was from the wrong side of the tracks. And yet here she is. She doesn't say anything. She just comes, and at the feet of Jesus, she begins to weep. She notices I, I'm always fascinated by this story. I'm wondering what she was thinking. But she notices Jesus' dirty feet. And, and with her tears, she begins to, to wash his feet, and then she takes her hair down. This is scandalous. In this culture, this is not done. But this is not a lady that's, that's not accustomed to scandal. She already understands. Nobody holds her in high esteem. So what's it matter anyhow? Yeah, she's at the end of herself, and she realizes nobody's ever going to hold her on a high pedestal. And so she lets her hair down in front of everybody and begins to wash Jesus' feet and dry it with her hair. Then she takes from, from around her neck. She's, she's got a, a thing of perfume, a thing of oil, we, we believe from the story that she's, she's probably a prostitute. And so this, this oil was part of her vocation. It was expensive. And she would use it one drop at a time as she needed. We know why, right? So she'd smell good to make money. And she breaks it open and pours it out on the feet of Jesus. Can we stop right there? Keep, keep that scene in your mind. There, there's two people. There, there's the one that appears to have everything all together, that knows everything, and the one that appears to have nothing, crying, weeping, wiping Jesus' feet, pouring oil upon his feet, broken. Lord, help us this morning as we consider this image, to honestly assess and determine which one in this image we are. Lord, are we Simon the Pharisee? Or are we the broken, weeping woman intimately embracing Jesus because there's nothing else we can do? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, who, who liked to rock their kids when they were little? Who, who, who enjoyed doing that? You, you, Josh, you guys, you men are making me look bad. I hated it. Uh, it, it was a task worse than death to, to rock the kids. 
You know, I'm kind of a task-oriented person. Terry would go into the room and she would rock them and she would rock them and she would rock them and she could be in there hours rocking. I'd have to wake her up to, to, to get her to lay the kids down. Dylan hated it. Uh, Spencer and Wyatt, you know, they kind of embraced it. But Dylan was the whole time like this, get off me, uh, even as a baby. And uh, so she would rock and rock and rock and she just loved it. Me, on the other hand, I counted the rocks. In my mind, I would say, if I get to 100, that is enough rocking for any kid. And I'm not being facetious. I, I would count one, two, three. At 100, shoo! You know, Dylan was fine with that. Wyatt and Spencer sometimes would ask for more. See, see, Terry loved that intimate time with her kids. And I think when you think about that, you know, you could, you could look at, at the definition for intimacy. You could, you could look that up on dictionary.com or look it up in, a, in some sort of dictionary and, and they would give you some technical description of what intimacy is. But, but I see that picture of Terry rocking the boys. And to me, that is a better definition than any words could, could speak of what it means to be intimate. God knows you intimately. That <laughs> this morning as you've come into this room and, 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 and maybe, maybe you're close to God, maybe you feel like he's far off, maybe, maybe you feel like he doesn't care, maybe you've not thought about this uh, too often, maybe this is not on your radar, but I want you to know that as, if you've, if you, as you've come into this room today, God knows you intimately. Now, now, the biblical word that of know is significant in the Bible. And, and we find this, this word throughout the Scripture. In, in Genesis 4.1, and, and we're not going to belabor this. Aren't we glad our kids are in here this morning? <laughs> uh, in 4.1, it says, Adam knew Eve. And so they're talking about Adam and Eve. They're, they're, they're intimate. They're, there's this... There's the connection of husband and wife, and it's described with this word, no. You know, there's, there's lots of words that, that the biblical writer could use, but, but he uses the word no, and, and the Hebrew word is yada. That, that Adam knew in, in, this, in this connection, in this intimate connection, there was this intimacy, there was this true knowledge. Now, there's other words that could be used, but, but they use yada. And, and one Hebrew scholar describes this word as a mingling of souls. I, I like that description. That, that to know this yada word that's used with Adam and Eve and, and, and will be used in Scripture with regard to God is this, this mingling of the soul with Adam and Eve. Now, those of you who've been married for, for a while, um, you know, there's a difference between your first date and when you've been long time married, right? <laughs> Terry and I will be married 25 years here pretty quick. And I don't know, is, is this normal? I don't have to say anything, and she doesn't even have to see me for her to know that I'm upset. Anybody else like that? I mean, we, we, could, we could be in bed, going to sleep, lights out, and she can know if I'm upset, and I can know if she's upset. That's a terrible way to live. It's much easier just to go to sleep not knowing, right? <laughs> Anybody else like that? 
You know, she just knows. There's, there's this intimacy now between Terry and I that did not exist when we first started dating. You know, there, there, there's not that, not that we don't like to talk, we do, but, but the truth is we can sit together and eat and not have to say anything but know everything. <laughs> that, that there's a connection. I, you know, we, we just kind of know each other. We're, we're intimate. There, there's been, honestly, a mingling of our souls over the many years. The, and, and, and I'm just curious, who's, who's, who's been married more than 50 years here today? Raise your hand. Anybody? Got any 50 years? Okay, we've got 50. Okay, we've got 60. 53? Okay, see. 60, okay. All right, well, you guys win. Uh, see me later for the prize. You, you understand what I'm talking about. There's just this mingling of the souls. There's this, this connection. And this is the word that the Bible uses in reference to God and us. God wants to yada. God wants to know us. God wants to have an intimate connection with us. Psalm 139, David writes, O oh Lord, you've examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. Kind of like a wife, right? <laughs> you know, God, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know. You, you know everything about me. And, and it's true not just for David, but it's true for us this morning. That, that God knows us like that. He knows intimately how we feel. God knows when we hurt. God knows what we're thinking. God knows what we're going to say before we even say it. God intimately knows you this morning. And so whatever care, whatever you carried in here this morning, maybe no one else knows. Maybe you feel like you're all alone. You're not alone. God knows. God knows exactly where you are in relationship with Him. God knows exactly what you need in relationship with Him. Isn't it, isn't it funny? And maybe it's not funny. It's just, it's just ironic, I guess, how, how difficult for us it is for us to confess to God when God already knows. <laughs> you know, when you're afraid, when you're dealing with anxiety, when you're dealing with stress, it's like, man, I, I got to tell don't want to tell God. And God already knows. He's just waiting for us to share. God wants you to know him. Not only does God know you, but God wants you to know him. God wants you to have this intimate understanding, intimate relationship with him where you begin to know him and start knowing him in the same way that he knows you. Now, as I thought about this part of this, the sermon, I, I, I thought, okay, we need to stop here. Um, I think we can run past these thoughts. And I know they're simple. This isn't profound rocket science, and we've, we've heard this our whole life. But we can run past this. But I, I want you to know that God, the creator of the universe, the I am, all-powerful God, wants you to know him. That in the heart of God, there is not just this desire and this, this willingness to know you, 
But within the heart of God, there is this desire that we know Him. That, that as you're sitting here this morning, Terry, as you're sitting here this morning, God's saying, man, I want Terry Moore to know more about me. Amen. You know, that's God's desire for you this morning as, as you've gathered in this place, that God, God's desire for you is that this morning you will know more of Him. Not in a head knowledge way, but, but in a heart way. As, as God's soul mingling with mine in, in a yada way. And as intimate as a husband and a wife. Adam and Eve, when, when, they're, when they, be, they come together, when they're married, Adam says, now she is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. <laughs> that that intermingling, this becoming one, God's desire is that we become so close that, that God intimately knows us and we intimately know him. Now, our relationship with God, just very practically, it, it, it takes anything a relationship in, 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 this, in this earthly realm needs. You know, there needs to be vulnerability. There, 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 we need to spend time where there needs to be an investment. You know, we, we don't just draw closer to people just because we want to, but we invest in other people. And so if we want to draw closer to God, then, then it's the same. We, we have to invest in that relationship and we have to be vulnerable before God. But God's desire for you, God's desire for me, is that we grow closer to him. Can we throw that picture back up there, Dave? Which are you? I, 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 honestly, not, you don't have to answer this out loud. You know, I want you to yell this out. But, but, but as you look at this picture, which of those people do you associate most closely with? See, see Simon knew all about Jesus. Simon knew Scripture better than anybody in this room would have known Scripture. He had had it memorized from early on. Simon would have known all about Messiah. He would have known all about God. He would have had all the right theological answers. Culturally, he had it all together. When you would have looked at Simon, you'd have thought, man, that is the guy to be. Simon knew all about Jesus, but Simon didn't know Jesus. The lady, on the other hand, the, the sinner, she intimately knew Jesus. It, it wasn't about studying Jesus, it was about embracing Jesus. It wasn't about her past excuses. There's all sorts of reasons she shouldn't be in here doing this. But she moved past all of that to embrace Jesus intimately. I love King David. And, I, I, you know, his story's fascinating. It, it, it's fascinating because it includes flaws. You know, there's things that David does that's great. And there's, you know, David makes some of the worst mistakes ever. And yet he's this man after God's own heart. And, and I've always wondered what made David different. 
And, and I'm reminded of a story. It's, it's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. That the, the ark of the tabernacle, the ark is, is outside of Jerusalem, and they decide to move it into Jerusalem. As they're moving it into Jerusalem, it begins to fall over, and somebody puts his hand out, and he puts his hand out and touches the ark, and God strikes him dead. I don't know. <laughs> it's what the Bible tells us. It's, it's, a, it's kind of an odd story. It is. And so they don't know what to do, so they just stop, and they leave it right where it is. And so David hears that there's blessing where the ark has been left. He said, okay, well, we're going to do it again. <laughs> I don't understand why God killed that guy. I don't understand any of this, but we're going to do our best to bring it back into Jerusalem where I'm residing, where the center of the government is. And so they begin to bring it back into Jerusalem. And, and it says that David stripped down to his underwear. <laughs> I don't know if they call it underwear in Hebrew. It's probably some real cool Hebrew word that I don't know and danced before the ark, all the way into Jerusalem. And Micah, who was Saul's daughter, Sauling, and just, oh, it just bugged her. Oh, look at him, he's out making a fool of himself. And she basically said that to David. And David said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me tell you what, I'll be much more undignified than that. Are you willing to be undignified for God? Is your reputation and your esteem more important than embracing intimately Jesus? Simon's reputation was more important than his relationship with Jesus. The, the lady could care less about her reputation. All she wanted was Jesus. Who are you in this picture? See, fans choose knowledge. Followers embrace intimacy. Now, our default setting in the church, and, and, and you know, there's nothing wrong with, with knowledge. There's nothing wrong with knowledge. To, to learn the Bible is a good thing. The Bible says, study the word to prove yourself approved. And so we study the Bible. That, there's nothing wrong with study. But, but, that's not the end. See, see, we love Bible studies and, and sermons become lectures and, and Sunday school becomes a place of knowledge. But all this knowledge is supposed to go somewhere. It's more than facts. It's intimacy. God's desire for you is not knowledge but an intimate relationship with Him. Simon knew, but he didn't know. So let me ask you, do you know or do you know? I mean, is Jesus a set of facts or is he the person that you cry to when things are going wrong? Is, when we sang songs, were those just facts that we sang or, or, or were you intimately embracing the Savior who gave his all for you. We let Jesus know you. Will you embrace a close and intimate relationship because that's what he desires? Are you ready for yada, knowing Jesus? You know, I love our sacred responses and we, we, we use the altar the last 
two weeks, and, and I've been helped at the altar. I don't know if you have or not, but I've been helped at the altar. We've had some significant prayer time, and, you know, it's a sacred time. It's a sacred response, and I love it. It's, it's private, but it's public all at the same time that, that we can see, but it's a private prayer time. It's, I love it. And today we're going to close with communion, and we respond together. Uh, you know, there, there's something about communion. And I think there's a couple images when we, we see communion. Throw that first image up there. Of course, this is uh, Da Vinci's uh, Last Supper. And, you know, it's like the, the last photo op. <laughs> you know, they're all lined up there. You know, if you can't see the camera, the camera can't see you. Simon Peter, look this way. You know, they take the snap, the shot. And, you know, it's, it, you know this is the image most of the time we associate with this Last Supper. It's, it, it's not realistic. You know, it's not how the, it's not, and, and I'm sorry if you've done the puzzle, if you've done the paint by number, it's okay. You know, it's not, it's not anti-God, but it's not really a realistic image of the Last Supper. It's, it's not how it would have been staged. It's not how it would have looked. And, and this next one's probably more realistic. You know, it's not as famous as Da Vinci's, <laughs> but this intimate lying on each other, this intimate table fellowship that, that you know, they're, 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 almost, they're almost reclining on each other. You know, one family, one family with the king. Now, this isn't, this isn't a formal meal with the president of the United States. This is a family dinner where Jesus sets as the head of the household. And that's the imagery of communion. When we've gathered in this place, we've gathered in the presence of our God and our King, who is our Father. The head of the household is here. And we're all gathering around the table. I've said this before, but in God's kingdom, there's no kids' tables. You know, there's one table. And if we have to scooch in, is scooch a word? I don't know, it sounds, it sounds like a word. If we have to get closer, you know, where you don't have as much room, but that's okay with family, right? You guys have had those family dinners. The Greens understand sometimes you have to just scooch in. You have to get close, you know, because you want, you want everybody at the table. Amen. That's the image of communion that we've gathered in this place and God's saying, I want you all at the table. If we have to get close, that's okay. So one of the images of communion is this, this ideal that, that we're drawing close with each other. And, and, and it may be too close at times, but God's drawing us together. Can I tell you a different communion story? It's the story of, of David and Mephibosheth. <laughs> Mephibosheth is one of my favorite words in the Bible to say. So you guys want to say it too. Say it with me. Mephibosheth. Okay. David is, um, of course, he's anointed king. And, and Saul hears or begins to understand that, that his time has passed. And, and David looks like the heir appointed. And, uh, and, and, and Saul has a son, Jonathan. And of course, Saul wants the, the royalty to stay in his family, and he, you know, he's afraid of David, and, and so he begins to, to mistreat and pursue David. You know, David does nothing to initiate this. As a matter of fact, there's times in David's life where he could kill Saul, 
And he doesn't. And Saul initiates this pursuit of David. And, and eventually, not because of David, but because Saul just will not relent, there's this civil war. And in the midst of the civil war, Saul, Jonathan, who is David's closest friend, oh, man, it's a terrible story. And almost their entire family is wiped out. And David's the king, and, and after a while, David says, is there anyone of Saul's family that's left that I can show kindness to? And they say, well, there's this one guy, Mephibosheth. Uh, Mephibosheth's probably 18 years old at this time, maybe a little bit older. He, he's the son of Jonathan. He, he was dropped as a child in the midst of all this, and he's crippled in both feet. And in two occasions in the scripture, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, it talks about Mephibosheth was crippled in both feet. And so David invites him to Jerusalem. And of course, Mephibosheth's thinking, well, this is the end. <laughs> He's going to wipe me out. And David shows him kindness. He shows him grace. He shows him mercy. And he restores him to all the assets of his grandfather, Saul. And Mephibosheth moves to Jerusalem and at the end of 2 Samuel 9, I think it's verse 13, it says, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. <laughs> table fellowship. Intimate fellowship with the king despite the sins of the past. That's good news for you. It's good news for me. I've got sins in my past. Do you? And I can have table fellowship with Jesus. I can be intimate with Jesus today. And I can represent this through communion. I can be at the table with my God and my Savior and my Father and my brother. <laughs> Not because of what I've done, but because of what He's done. He's given me mercy. You know, and I looked, Bob, I looked at commentary after commentary, and, and, and none of them really addressed this fully. This, now he was lame in both feet. And I may be wrong here, but I think they're missing something here. I think the writer is intentionally bringing this up again. This is the second time he uses this exact phrase. He's eating at the king's table, and he's lame in both feet. And you begin to think of the image of a monarch in this day. And the image of a monarch is they surround themselves with who? The rich, the powerful, the able-bodied, the ones that can benefit them, the ones that look good. I mean, think about it. That's, that's, just, that's the nature of our world. And yet David's got this lame, crippled guy at his table. In fact, earlier in 2 Samuel, David says something, or maybe in 1 Samuel, David says, there will be no lame at the king's table. <laughs> it's an order. It's, it's an executive order that David issues. Right? We've heard a lot of those this week. In Scripture, the lame were considered unclean. Doesn't seem fair to me. 
But in Scripture, the lame were were unclean. They, They couldn't serve in the temple. And David puts him at his table. And I think to me, as I think about this, and I think about communion, I think it talks about who we are. I got to tell you, I don't feel like the rich and the powerful. I don't feel like I have everything together. I feel like I'm lame in two feet. I don't feel like the clean. I feel like the unclean. I don't feel worthy to sit at the king's table. And it may not even be past sins in your life. It may not be something in the past like that, but it's just this general feeling of unworthiness to sit at the king's table. I want you to know that Jesus invites you. Jesus welcomes you. Jesus wants you to sit at the table. I love... I loved all the songs we sang today. And I, all of, don't, don't you like it when you think back? Songs have these things in your mind that you can think back. I, you know, we, we sang Days of Elijah, and I can remember we were singing Days of Elijah at a, a, a slow district assembly. And in the balcony, all of a sudden, somebody went, Woo! <laughs> and I looked up, and there was Mike Dennis, who was from Trenton Church of the Nazarene, a pastor in Bedford, Ohio. And, and you know, every time I hear that song, I think of Mike. And then, you know, Amazing Grace. How many times have we sang Amazing Grace and God's moved? How many times have we sing Amazing Grace at Tri-County, right, Josh? It's like every week. And then we'd always end it with, when the battle's over. <laughs> you, 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 me and Josh just having a conversation. You guys enjoy yourself? <laughs> and then we sang running to his arms and, and instantly. Music means something, doesn't it? it speaks to our soul. I I remember a trip on a mission field to Guatemala where, you know, I I tend to listen to songs over and over when they begin to really move and and listen to that song like 10 times as we went back and forth to to the mission site and and feeling like I was on top of the van, (laughs) my hands lifted high. But this morning when we were singing it, singing it, singing it, When we were singing it, God reminded me that as hard as I run towards him, he's running hard towards me. <laughs> so we sang, I'm running to your arms, and God says, that's okay, I'm running back. You serve a God who doesn't just wait for you, but he's coming for you. And as you receive communion, as we receive communion this morning, these are the images that are represented that we are invited to the table with the king. Stand with me, if you will. We're going to dismiss from the back, and we'll receive it by intention, meaning that the bread's here, and and you can just dip it in in the grape juice as you go by. I'm going to pray with this before. Uh, There's also... um, We've got, if you need help being served, there's some that the ushers can help you with and we'll make sure you get served. And there's also some, some gluten-free if you, if you have that kind of allergy that, that'll be up here as well. I'm gonna pray with us and then we're gonna receive communion. Lord, help us not to be uh, content with just knowledge of you, but to seek this intimate connection with you, Lord, where, where we know you and you know us. And Lord, we live in that reality. Help us, Lord, as we receive these elements to see that they represent your body and your blood broken for us, that they represent a table that we can sit at with our King, our Lord, our Father. Not just here, 
but it's a way of life, Lord, that extends from out this service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.